Our scripture passage is that beautiful, wonderful, comforting, astounding passage concerning God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, found in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28 and going to verse 39. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,757. So 1,757. After describing a life in the Spirit, and after putting before Paul's recipients the future glory that awaits those who have been called and redeemed by God, Paul says these words. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We've been doing a sermon series on the canons of Dort. This is the 400th anniversary since the Synod of Dort gathered to deal with the remonstrance or the Arminian controversy where it was discussed there the teachings of Jacob Arminius concerning uh, what the Dutch Reformed Church believed about God's grace, about salvation, and how we can know that we are saved, how we come to be saved. And therefore, at that synod, the canons of Dort were written in response to these remonstrants. And we've looked so far at unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, total depravity, and finally tonight, closing out our sermon series on the canons of Dort, we're going to be looking at the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. We're going to be looking at the fifth main point of doctrine, and that can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnal. I could give you a page number real quick, but I'm going to be using a uh, 
more updated translation, so hopefully um, it's a little bit easier to understand some of the language and, and the translation in the back is a little bit outdated. 109 is the page in the back of the Green Psalter hymnal if you want to be able to reference as we go along. But just to open up so we get a glimpse or we get an idea of what is being spoken of here in the fifth head of doctrine, the fifth main point of doctrine, and the canons of Dort, the preservation of the perseverance of the saints, I wanted to give an illustration. And I think uh, rather than inventing my own, I might use one that I think is very helpful. And it's found in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. In chapter 5, Bunyan's central character named Christian meets a helper named Interpreter, and he comes to the Interpreter's house. An Interpreter's job is to teach Christian crucial truths that he's going to need for the journey of faith. I kind of see the Interpreter's house as like a a, a picture of the church. Uh, An Interpreter is like a pastor who is presenting what these scriptural teachings mean. Christian's going to need these as he's on his journey. And in one of these rooms, the interpreter shows Christian a fire. And the fire is burning against a wall. And someone is standing by the fire, constantly trying to put the fire out by pouring water on it. Okay? But the fire doesn't go out. Not only did the fire not go out as this person is trying to pour water on it, but it it burns higher and hotter. So, of course, as this is going on, Christian turns to the interpreter and he says, what does this mean? Or if you're reading an old translation of Pilgrim's Progress, what does this mean? What thou this meaneth? Or something like that. Interpreter then explains that the fire itself is the work of grace that God produces in our hearts. The grace of trust in Christ and love for him. But the devil, he's the person standing next to the fire, pouring water on it. He's constantly trying to put this fire out with temptations and worries and trials. The interpreter wanted to show Christian how this fire not only kept burning as this water is being poured on it, but how the burning became higher and hotter and more powerful. So he took Christian around to the back side of the wall where Christian saw a man who had a jar of oil in his hand, which he was pouring continually on the fire. So Christian asked again, What thou dost this meaneth? An interpreter answered, This is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest, told you, that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is the teaching, that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. But maintaining the soul, it is. That's really what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about how 
our triune God completes the work. He has begun in us. A trying God completes the work He has begun in us. He has started in us. This really is the culmination of all that we've talked about before. If it is true, and it is biblical, that God has ordained before the foundation of the earth those whom He shall redeem out of sin. And that Christ has come and he has purchased the salvation of his elect. Even though we are totally depraved by the power of the Holy Spirit, that depravity shall be overcome, transformed, that we shall truly come to the grace of God. How then can we not finish by saying, if all this is done of God, then it shall come to its fulfillment, its completion. So, following the articles in the Canons of Dort, we're going to be looking at this in three parts. Sin and perseverance. And this really covers the first seven articles in that last section of the Canons. And then we're going to be looking at assurance and perseverance. And this really covers articles 8 through 11. And then lastly, accusations. And perseverance. And this covers articles 12 through 15. And hopefully you'll see what I mean when I'm stating it this way. So let's look at that first section. Sin and perseverance. The clarification that's going on here in the first seven articles of the Canons of Dort is really, well, how can it be said that Christians shall shall persevere to the end if we are still in a state in which we wrestle with sin. That is, sin remains. So how can we say that there is a a guarantee of perseverance? And that's really what Article 1 states. Article 1 states um, that we are not free And it uses, in my translation, the word entirely. Not free entirely from sin. We're not free entirely from sin. So regeneration has occurred, but we live in the already not yet. We live in in, in this circumstance in which we have been born again. We are new creatures, but we have something that remains with us. And it states it in this way. Those people whom God, according to his purpose, calls into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, he also sets free from the reign 
So we are free from the reign of sin and the slavery of sin. So sin no longer reigns over us. And this is why um, the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, says we're, we've been uh, saved, brought, bought free from the tyranny of the devil. And uh, we're also not slaves to sin as we were before. But in this life, we're not entirely free, and this is the way it defines it, from the flesh and body of sin. So we're free from the reign and the slavery of sin, but we're not free from the flesh and body of sin. That means that we still wrestle, we still struggle. Or as the song we sang earlier, Christian, do you struggle? We're still in a battle against sin. And so then it goes on in Article 2 to describe what our reaction is to sins of weakness or remaining sin, besetting sin, the sin that is still within us. Uh, Daily sins of weakness arise, blemishes cling to even the best works of God's people giving them continual cause to humble themselves before God, to flee for refuge to Christ crucified, to put the flesh to death more and more by the spirit of supplication and by holy exercises of godliness, the strain toward the goal of perfection until they're free from this body of death and reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. So this besetting sin for the believer is a motivation, is a continual cause to humility. This sin that remains is supposed to drive us to God. Not away from God. Okay? And in the midst of these remaining sins that we struggle with, we have this promise in Article 3. Because of these remnants of sin dwelling in them and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in it to the end. Powerfully preserving them in it to the end. So what's being said in this is that because we have this remaining sin, that we still struggle against the flesh and body of sin, left to our own devices, we would not make it. Or, as John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Like you lose your keys all the time. Or the TV remote. You would. But God's grace is what keeps you. God's grace is what holds on to you. But then we could go further than that. Well, not just this remaining sin, but what about, what about, I guess, something I'm going to call serious sin? Regardless of what many people say today, there are varying levels and degrees 
to sin. Sin is sin, yes, we all agree, but there are varying levels of sin. And that's why Articles 4 through 7 talk about what some of us may have experienced in our own lives. And that is to say, a time in which we knew someone who seemed as if they had fallen away from the faith, who seemed as if they had fallen from grace, or even our own experience. There was a time in which we had fallen, gone way off the path, and done things that we had never even thought we would do before, or fallen into sin in ways that we never thought could happen before. What are we to say of that? Are we to say that we weren't saved until we came out of that? Or that what's going on here? And that's what's being spoken of in article, Articles 4 through 7. Article 4 talks about the danger of true believers falling into serious sins. It says, although that power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh, yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot by their own fault depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give it to them. And this is a reason for us to be watchful, to pray. That we may not be led into temptation. Whether we may fall into serious sin. But Article 5 continues. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time. Until after they have returned to the way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly face again shines upon them. So this promise that believers will be preserved until the end, or to persevere until the end, is not a license to be not careful, watchful, prayerful. That is to say, as true believers, we should desire at all times to be faithful unto God and to not have a fatherly discipline from Him, but to please Him with a thankful gratitude of expression of service. And we should not think that we could not fall into serious sin and feel even at a time the lack of His presence, his face upon us, his care and concern for us. Article 6, for God who is rich in mercy according to his unchangeable purpose of election does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely even when they fall grievously. Neither does he let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption in the state of justification or commit the sin which leads to death sin against the Holy Spirit and plunge themselves entirely forsaken by him into eternal ruin. But he renews them to repentance. That's what Article 7 says. Although we can fall into serious sin, God does not leave us there. And God renews us in our faith and repentance. We can trust that. We can have those sure promises. And that's what Romans 8 is really telling us that great and wonderful promise. It flows out from God's decree. It flows out from the promises in Romans 8, 28, 29, 
that all things that happen to us in this life work out for the good if we're called by God. That we are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. It is the outflowing of these that we can then cling to the reality that we, who have been given everything in Christ, should know and hold to the promise that nothing shall separate us from God's love. Uh, The closing benediction in Jude speaks of this. Also 1 Thessalonians 5 speaks of this holding, preserving grace of God. Let's look at the second point. What I've called assurance and perseverance. There is the certainty of this preservation presented to us in Article 8, and you can hear that certainty coming through in Paul's words in Romans 8, can't you? You can hear the certainty when he says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that certainty is spoken of here in Article 8. That is to say, we can be certain of our perseverance, of our preservation. This is something that the remonstrants were coming against. They were saying, no one can be entirely certain of their preservation and to the end. Article 8 speaks of this. It is not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost with respect to themselves. This, is not only eas- this not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. Since his plan cannot be changed, his promise cannot fail, the calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked, the merit of Christ as well as his interceding and preserving cannot be nullified, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. This is what Article 8 is saying. The certainty of our perseverance, the assurance which we have, is not in ourselves. If it were in ourselves, we could not have it. That's what the remonstrants were saying. That's what the Arminians were saying. No, this certainty is in God. His very nature and character. even invokes the three persons of the Trinity in this article. God's undeserved mercy with respect to God, the merit of Christ, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It is in the foundational principle of who God is that we can trust that we will be preserved to the end. It is not because of who we are. Our certainty is grounded in the I am. 
Article 9 goes on to describe the assurance of this preservation. Concerning this preservation, those chosen to salvation, and concerning the perseverance of true believers in faith, believers themselves can and do become assured in accordance with the measure of their faith by which they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church, and that they have the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So Article 9 says it's in accordance with the measure of their faith. And one could look at this and say what's being said here is that the more faith you have, the more assurance you're going to have, which there is a correlation there. But need I remind you that as we've discussed these doctrines of grace, we have revealed the fact that faith is not simply a capability of all people and only those who are intelligent enough or smart enough are those who place faith in Christ or have the opportunity enough. But in fact, faith is a miraculous gift of God. Therefore, whether you have a mountain full of faith or a mustard seed of faith, whether you struggle with doubts or you're firmly planted, the presence of faith is reason enough to have assurance that you are one of God's chosen and that you will be preserved to the end. Article 10 speaks of the ground of this assurance. This assurance does not derive from some private revelation beyond or outside the word, but from faith in the promises of God, which he has very plentifully revealed in his word for our comfort. That is to say that if you want to grow the measure of your faith or come to a more fulfilled assurance of this perseverance, of this preservation, it is not by seeking to have some sort of special revelation of God in a dream or in a prophecy or anything like that, but it is to go to the Word of God. And to read it and to hear its promises and to say, those are for me. And to hold to them and to cling to them and to trust them for your comfort. Yet nonetheless, Kansas Dort realize that people have doubts. Doubts concerning this assurance. It's because of this besetting sin, this remaining sin, the flesh and this body of flesh that we deal with, that we have these doubts. And that even under severe temptation, we don't always experience the fullness of this assurance and the certainty of it. And then it says this, but God, the Father of all comfort, does not let them be tempted beyond what they can bear, but with the temptation he also provides a way out. And by the Holy Spirit revives in them the assurance of their perseverance. So even in times of doubt that we are to trust that God will renew us. 
in this perseverance, in this assurance. And to trust him. Let's move to this final point. This is where we uh, begin to get into a little bit of the polemics. And you can see that the writers are, are dealing with some false understandings that were being brought against this doctrine. I'm probably not spelling accusations right, but that's fine. You guys can make fun of me later at the bonfire. One of the first things that I heard when I became a Calvinist or whatever you want to call it was a, a counter-argument against this perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints um, with the whole once saved, always saved idea. Uh, that is to say that you guys need to be aware that there is a kind of general evangelical view of the once saved, always saved, where they believe in this perseverance of the saints doctrine, but they don't believe in the rest of the doctrines of grace. You get yourself in, but then God keeps you in. And it's a truncated kind of shallow view. And what happens in a lot of places is this once saved, always saved becomes a bit of a uh, get your hole punched, you know, walk down the aisle, um, say, you know, raise your hand uh, at, a, at, a, uh, at a kind of, you know, tent revival, and then, oh, I'm in, and I'm always going to be in. So now I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't have to go to hell, so I'm going to live like hell. That's basically what goes on here in this once saved, always saved. And there's an element of truth to that statement, isn't there? But the key factor is, what does saved look like? What is it? And that's why I've kind of switched back and forth Preservation, perseverance. Because the element of what's being spoken of here is that God not only punches your ticket and then leaves you there, but then as God has begun to save you, He continues to save you. That is, we don't only believe in justification, we believe in sanctification. And glorification. And we have to have all those pieces together. Or I could put it like this. In salvation, by faith alone, God declares you righteous and makes you righteous. Right? And that's why in Article 12 it says, This assurance is not something, Article 12 and 13 are basically two sides of the same coin, that calls us to carelessness and godlessness, that this promise that I now have that I am going to be saved means I can live however I want, but in fact this assurance 
is an incentive to godliness. So far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness and cross-bearing and in confessing the truth and of well-founded joy in God. And the key factor here is because we know that if we are to persevere to the end, it will not be by our effort, but it will be by God's grace working in us. Therefore, Article 13 says, neither does this renewed confidence of perseverance produce immorality or lack of concern for godliness and those put back on their feet after a fall, but it produces a much greater concern to observe carefully the ways of the Lord which he prepared in advance. It encourages godliness. It does not encourage sinfulness. This is an uh, encouragement to our sanctification. Not a discouragement. This is not a truncated, hole-punched view of salvation. This is a trusting always in God's grace working in us. That is to say, the perseverance of the saints, this doctrine is not meant to call upon you to work harder and to do more. It calls upon you to be relying upon God in all things, trusting in His work of grace in you. And it calls you to remember that whatever you face in this life, your faithfulness through it is not a work of your own effort, but a work of God's sustaining grace. That when in our lives of trouble and difficulty, we see Satan pouring water on the fire of God's grace, we need to remember that on the other side of the wall, Jesus is there pouring the grace of oil, the oil of grace upon it. Therefore, because we know that this salvation is of God and God alone, because we know that trusting and the assurance of our salvation is something that's supposed to encourage us to grow in godliness and holiness, to remain, to remain watchful, then we should not be surprised that Article 14 encourages us to use the means of God's grace. This doctrine is not something that is meant to separate us from the way in which God ordinarily operates in our lives. And so just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel, so he preserves, continues, and completes his work by the hearing and reading of the gospel, by meditation on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and also by the use of the sacraments. I mean, this is a really great and plain and powerful example of the importance of Lord's Day worship. Because God works His preserving grace in you 
as you gather and listen to the preaching of God's word, as you participate in the sacraments and partake of the Lord's Supper, as you see someone else be baptized and think of your own baptism and improve upon it. So we are to use the means of God's grace. And we are not to be surprised at the varying reactions that people have to this doctrine of the preservation, the perseverance of God's saint. Article 15 says, This teaching about the perseverance of true believers and saints and about their assurance of it, a teaching which God has very richly revealed in His Word for the glory of His name, for the comfort of the godly in which He impresses on the hearts of believers, is something which the flesh does not understand. Satan hates, the world ridicules, the ignorant and the hypocrites abuse, and the spirits of error attack. The bride of Christ, on the other hand, has always loved this teaching very tenderly and defended it steadfastly as a priceless treasure. And God, against whom no plan can avail and no strength can prevail, will ensure that she will continue to do this. To this God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be honor and glory forever. Amen. This doctrine is one that is believed and confessed by true believers, but one that the world does not understand. I really believe that there are um, five applications that can be made here, and I'll try to work through this quickly, and they come right out of the articles themselves, themselves. By far, one of the worst fives I have ever done. The first is humble dependency. This doctrine should lead us to humble dependency. And I think you notice that pretty much all of these doctrines call for this. Uh, Article 2 says, uh, Since daily sins of weakness arise and blemishes cling to even the best works of God's people giving them continual cause to humble themselves before God, to flee for refuge to Christ crucified, to put the flesh to death more and more by the spirit of supplication and by holy exercises of godliness, strained toward the goal of perfection. So we are called to humble dependency with this doctrine. The second thing that I believe this does for us is prayerful alertness. This doctrine is not meant to lull us to sleep in our flesh and in our sin. Article 4 says, For this reason they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also God's, by God's just permission they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in the scripture of David. Peter, and other saints falling into sins. Therefore, we are not to be lulled to sleep in this comfort, but we are called to prayerful alertness. Nonetheless, this is something that should give us profound comfort. Article 9, believers themselves can and do become assured in accordance with the measure of their faith by which they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church, that they have the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. 
Article 10 says, And if God's chosen ones in this world did not have this well-founded comfort that the victory will be theirs and this reliable guarantee of eternal glory, they would be of all people most miserable. So God has given this to us as a comfort in times of trials and temptations and difficulty. And by far, this has been one of the most profound applications in my own life. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I know I'm your pastor, but I sin. And I struggle with sin. And in the midst of the guilt and shame of that sin, I am brought back again and again to the grace of God in knowing even if I don't feel it in that moment, that God is not done with me. Uh, the fourth, of course, I think we just talked about, is that this doctrine is truly the true source of spiritual growth. That is to say, if we really desire to grow in godliness and holiness, it is not by abandoning the promise that we have that God who has begun a work in us will bring it to completion in order to, to somehow spark us on to fervent working hard because we're worried that if we go to bed without praying for the forgiveness of our sins, we're going to wake up and we're, maybe we'll go to hell because we haven't done enough today. That's not how we're going to grow in godliness and holiness. We're going to grow in godliness and holiness by trusting that God is the one who is working his grace in us. And God is the one who has promised us that he will preserve us and persevere us. That he has justified us, he is sanctifying us, and he will glorify us, as Paul says. That's how we're going to have spiritual growth. It's not by some sort of false concept that we could lose eternal life, as ironic as that sounds. It's not by fear, is what I mean. We do not grow spiritually by fear. We grow spiritually by faith. Okay? And then the last, um, the last thing that I think it teaches us is to use, use the means. Use the means of God's grace that he's given to us. Trust them. Open up the word in the morning. Read it and know that God is working in you. Come to church on the Lord's Day and listen to the preaching of God's word and know that God is working in you, his preserving and persevering grace. That as we listen to the preaching of God's word and hear it, that Jesus is there pouring that oil on our fire. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, God is strengthening in us that grace to use God's means of grace and to trust them to continue to work God's grace in us and through us. I think it's been a tremendous blessing to look at these things with you, these doctrines of grace. And I pray that it has been uh, as much a blessing to you as it has been to me to consider uh, the amazing, the amazingness of God's grace.
why it is that we, um, we know and we praise God for the salvation that He's worked in us. And I, I pray that these things that we've di- discussed and talked about really have worked into our lives as we've grown in our faith, our humility, and as we have grown to, I pray, truly come to grasp at a deeper level uh, the grace of God and Jesus Christ for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask that you would bless them to our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to trust in you all the days of our lives, to trust you for our salvation, and to know that you who have begun a good work in us will bring it to completion on that day, the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.